Right, okay, <clears throat> let's remind ourselves that the base verse we're working from is Romans 6.14, where Paul just says, you are not under law, but under grace. And uh, thus far, we've answered the two questions that we started off with. There are four in all. And the first one is, what is this law we're not under? That's the Old Covenant. We've seen that, the law of Moses. And why aren't we under it? We saw that as well <coughs> last week. And, and also, we've basically knocked the idea of legalism on the head. We've seen what it is and where it comes from. Um, although, as we go through the next few talks, we'll be seeing various other things about it. Now, we've also seen that the covenants in the Bible that God makes with man, all right, are, with one exception, royal grant covenants, i.e. they're simply a covenant where all it depends upon is the person who makes it doing his bit. So in the ancient world, a king said, I'm giving you a town, I'm giving you this plot of land. And it was as simple as that. The, the king had the power to do it, and he did it. It was a testament, it was a gift, it was a promise, and all it depended on was the person who made the promise keeping it. And if the king had the power to do it, which he did, and if he was a good king who kept his word, which he might or might not have been, all right, but the point is it only was down to him to do it. And of course, God has the power to do what he's promised, and because he's holy, he always keeps his word. And uh, so, with the exception of the Mosaic Law, all right, the old covenant that we're not under, we've seen that all the covenants that God made with man have been entirely unconditional. They do not depend on anyone fulfilling conditions, all right. I.e., in a covenant like that, man has no part in it, and so he can't break it. Man simply receives what God says he's going to do. So the point about a royal grant thing with the Lord is that you get what he says you're going to get. There aren't conditions for you to, feel, uh, to fulfill. And we saw that the reason that the Mosaic Law was the exception, it was a suzerain vassal one. It had conditions. It was imposed by the greater power on the lesser power. And the greater power set conditions within it. And if the lesser power broke them, then rather than getting the benefits, it got the cursings, all right? You know, it, it paid the penalty and the covenant was broken. And we saw that the reason for that, that the law was a suzerain vassal, was simply to show that in a covenant that had conditions for man to fulfill, then man would break it. It's as simple as that. A covenant with man that has a condition attached, whatever it is, is going to be broken. It's worthless. And so, therefore, the law came, a covenant, all the conditions, if you do this, 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 and this, I'll bless you, I'll be your God, all right? It was a covenant that proved that the basis of salvation would have to be not law, not man doing his bit and God doing his, but salvation would have to be on the basis of simply what God does. So the suzerain vassal thing of the law revealed to man once and for all, firstly, that he was sinful. The covenant came and it showed man that he was sinful. You had the Ten Commandments and the 600 odd, you know, sort of like remaining ones, and they were the straight edge against which the bentness of man could be seen. So that law revealed sin. And then secondly, because no one could obey the law, no one could get close to it, it proved beyond doubt that salvation would have to be through a royal grant, a covenant of pure grace, which depended only on God fulfilling his part of it. And so now we come to the covenant that we haven't done. I said there were six major ones, we've done five, and tonight we reach the six. The new covenant, the covenant of grace. And uh, what we're going to do is, is we, we saw last time 
um, you know, that Paul would, you know, have to come against the legalists in the church who were saying, well, look, okay, we've got Jesus, but we're still under the law. And uh, we saw Paul arguing about Abraham. And what he was saying is that Abraham ended up right with God. Abraham ended up justified simply through faith. And that that event happened 430 years before the law even came. So we saw Paul arguing that, okay, the law of Moses came, but there was already something working from God's side that enabled people, simply by having faith in him, to be saved. If you go to Galatians, um, it's a passage we, we saw last time, Galatians 3, and we actually see Paul establishing this. We saw it last time. Galatians... <clears throat> chapter 3, and we'll start reading from verse 15. And he says, <clears throat> Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. You know, so he's saying, right, I'm going to tell you about something you all understand, and it will help you to see exactly what God has done. He says, just as no one can set aside or add to a covenant in human terms that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Now, this next bit, all right, just, you know, sort of grab this. Paul says, the scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning Christ. Now, the point about that is that ultimately what God started with Abraham was going to be fulfilled, not merely in the Jewish race, but in one man, in Jesus. And of course, the point was, Jesus was the seed of Abraham, and everything came to completeness in Abraham's seed, all right, um, i.e. Jesus. And remember, Jesus was also the seed of the woman, going back to the covenant God made in the Garden of Eden. But the point is, he goes on to say, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance, and he's looking at salvation in terms of, you know, sort of like someone dies and leaves you a gift, if that depends on law, it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, what Paul is, is saying here, all right, is he's saying to Israel, look, the point is there was a covenant that was already in your scriptures, and it involved Abraham, all right? And it was a covenant that depended on what? The promise of God. And in verse 18, it says, then it no longer depends on a promise, all right? Now, that promise is the covenant mentioned in verse 17. So what we've got here is that Paul is saying to them there was a royal grant that was already operating at the time of Abraham, and that was before the law came. So what he's saying, a covenant of, you know, sort of like you do this and I'll do that, you know, sort of doesn't annul one that's gone earlier where God says, I'm going to do this. So the covenant of Moses didn't affect this royal grant thing when God simply spoke about salvation through faith. So what we're seeing here is that the covenant that we call the new one, okay, in the strict sense of the word, it wasn't in Bible times new. The Bible calls it the New Covenant, and we're going to see that, but in actual fact, it wasn't a new one. Um, in the strictest sense of the word, it was the first one that God ever made. From the time of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, a covenant was already in place, a means of people being saved from their sins, all right? But the reason the Bible calls it new is because it only came to its completeness in Jesus. And of course, that was after the 
uh, law of Moses or the old one, all right? And remember, the law was there simply to highlight man's need of a covenant of grace that was there from the word go, but kind of came to completeness and was highlighted when Jesus died on the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, the new was kind of finalised, all right, complete. The old was simply there to show people that if there's to be salvation, then it can't be on the basis of law, it can't be a, you know, a thing where God says, well, if you do your bit, I'll do mine and save you, because man can't do his bit, all right? <laughs> and what Paul is saying here is that um, a means of being saved simply through God's grace, royal grant, was already there, and Abraham knew all about it, okay? so. What we're seeing here, a new covenant, it is new in the sense that it was finalised when Jesus came, but the point was it actually predated the old. So it wasn't strictly a new covenant at all. Let's now actually turn to it. If you go to Jeremiah and chapter 31, um, Jeremiah chapter 31, <clears throat> I couldn't tell you what page it is, Joanne, because uh, di different Bibles are... Don't worry, I, I read it all out, so, so don't worry about that. But what we want is Jeremiah 31, and uh, we're going to start reading from verse 31. Now, this is God speaking to Israel through uh, Jeremiah. And the context here, historically, is that Israel is being carted off into captivity. Now, under the law of Moses, when Israel broke so many of the rules and the laws, the ultimate judgment under that covenant is that Israel would be carted off somewhere else. They'd lose the land and that a nation would come in and beat them up and drag them off. And it's at that point in the history of Israel that God speaks in this way. So the point is, God is speaking to them when they're at a point that they've broken the law of Moses yet again. I mean, they've blown it. And the history of Israel is that they blew it all along the line. They never kept the law. They were always under the, ju you know, the judgment of God. All right. Now then, this is what uh, the law says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their sins and remember their transgressions no more. Now, notice certain things. Here, God is saying, There was a covenant that I made with you in the land of your forefathers. You know, sort of Moses and all that, the, the law, all right? but I've got to do something different, all right? God is saying here, that is no good. And so he's talking about a covenant of a different kind. Now, notice certain things. It's unconditional. Here, God is speaking purely in terms of royal grant. He's simply saying, this is something I am going to do. We've had the law, and you've broken it. And under the terms of that contract, I've got to judge you. That was the deal of the law of Moses. Obey me, I'll bless you. Go against me, I'll curse you. You've gone against me, I'm cursing you. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do something else which doesn't depend on you. It's going to depend purely on me. And in these verses, five times God says, I will. All right? I will make a new covenant, I will put my law in their minds, I will 
be their God. This is God five times he says, I will. And at no point is man required to do a thing. Can you see that? God is just saying, I am going to do this. And it's a covenant that rests purely on the faithfulness of God. God is saying, I'm going to do a new thing, a covenant now that isn't going to be a suzerain vassal one, that's what you're under. I'm going to bring a royal grant one along and it's only going to depend on what I do. So that's the first thing, unconditional, quite unlike the law. And secondly, therefore, it's a new covenant. And the reason that it's a new one isn't because it came later, because the new covenant was working from the word go. It's new in contrast to the old. That's why it's called a new covenant, because Israel were under the law here. And so it's new in the sense that Israel here is under the law. All right? They had their bit to do, and God had his bit to do. Israel could not do its bit. So rather than get the blessing, they got cursing. And they were getting cursing at this time as well, you know, sort of dragged off somewhere. And the point is, the <laughs> covenant that God speaks about here is only going to be a blessing thing. You see, there's no cursings in it. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's no conditions. So it's a new covenant in contrast to the old. Although in the old you had the prospect of blessing or cursing, in reality all you got was cursing through sin. Man can't overcome sin. In the new covenant, regardless of the fact that man can't overcome sin, he's going to get blessing all the way along because it's only down to God doing his bit. But it's different from the old or from the law in a different way, again. Not just in the sense that this one is royal grant and the old one, you know, had conditions attached. It's different in another way. And what this royal grant thing that God is talking about is going to do, and it's something that the old covenant couldn't do, and it was the point that the new one was going to mean that people were going to be changed on the inside. God was going to write his laws on their minds and put his laws in their hearts. So what the new covenant does is that it speaks about the fact, not only is it unconditional, it's going to be a free gift, you're going to get it because I say so, but it's of a type, the Old Testament just said live like this and everyone found they couldn't if they are prepared to be honest. But the new covenant, God says, I'm going to change you on the inside, all right? So in fact, you're going to be able to keep the law because you're going to be different on the inside. Um, if you just go to Ezekiel now, 11, and see Ezekiel talking about this, Ezekiel follows Jeremiah, and um, you'll find the new covenant spoken about all over the place in the old covenant. And uh, Ezekiel, chapter 11, and if you find verse 19. Ezekiel, chapter 11, and verse 19. And we simply read this. This is God speaking. He says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. We're talking heart transplants here. <laughs> Under the new covenant, the old covenant, it told you how you ought to live to get blessed, but it didn't give you the power to change. The new covenant changes people from the inside. Um, go to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is just really to demonstrate, you know, it was all, you know, any Jew reading the Old Testament should have known all about this. It's in there from start to finish. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. And here God says, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, if you just go back into chapter 18, another mention of it, but uh, this, this shows us something quite interesting. Chapter 18 and uh, verse 30. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 30. Now, look what God is actually saying to Israel at this point. He says, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you each according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Because under the law, sin was your downfall. If you <laughs> sin, and that's it, you've had it. And then God says, rid yourselves of all the offences you have done and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Now, what is God saying to them there? He's saying to his people, get into the new covenant. Why are you putting up with this? Get into the new covenant. Under the old covenant, all you can do is, 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 is try and obey my laws and you can't do it because you're full of sin. But on offer, I've given you a chance. If you believe in me, I'll save you and I'll change you. Can you see, all the way through, the new covenant is there. And that is why individual Jews were getting saved all over the place. In the Old Testament, people were still saved by faith in the new covenant. And they were changed on the inside. Now, that leads us on to another aspect of the law, all right? And it's that with the law, all right, the Ten Commandments plus 600, all right, the law could only deal in externals. It could only deal in do this, but don't do that. And what the law did is that it represented the holiness of God externally, but it did so to a people who internally, inside of them, were in slavery to sin. So the point is, the law said, this is how you ought to be, all right? External. Do this and don't do that. But it was saying that to people who internally, in their hearts, were in slavery to sin. And yet this law couldn't do a thing to change. It could say, you're wrong, but the law couldn't give you the power so you could do right, you see. And so the point was, the law represented the holiness of God externally. Ethics, if you like. Simply, this is how you ought to live according to the holiness of God. But the point is, no one could, because internally, it's slavery to sin. And the law provided no way of you being changed on the inside. And so here's one of the points about the law, all right? It's this. It condemns you for being sinful. That is the job of the law. It condemns you for being sinful. It says you're wrong, and so God is going to judge you. But what the law doesn't do, it does nothing to help you in your plight. It condemns your heart, but it does nothing to change your heart. Can you see what I mean in that sense, that the law was purely external? It said, don't do that, do this. But it said it to people who had no power to do, you know, they did that and they couldn't do that. And the law said, you're doing it wrong. But the people, we have no power of ourselves to change. So the law condemns you, but it doesn't change you, all right? It deals in externals. Now, what that leads on to, because, of course, you've got to understand that our hearts deceive us. You know, the heart of man is, you know, deceitful. And the external nature of the law meant 
that the hearts of the people who were under it could deceive them in a particular way. And the way it deceived them was that it made them think that if they were complying to the law externally, therefore they were being truly holy, all right? I, it was the idea that if you refrain from the forbidden act, as it were, then you're guiltless of the sin, all right? Um, or conversely, if you do an act that the law says is good, then it kind of assumes that your motive for doing that act was righteous, as the act itself was, all right? So the point is, when you've got the law, and people know the law, and they say this represents the holiness of God, all right? They are on the inside incapable of changing, and the law can't change you. But what can happen, because our hearts are evil, all right? What can happen is that you can go down the religious moral course, all right? And so you can say, right, I am externally complying with the law. The law tells me not to steal. I don't steal, therefore I'm righteous, all right? And so the point is, Israel believed that because they were obeying the law externally, I'm not committing adultery, not murdering people, that meant that therefore inside they were righteous, okay? And this brings us on now to the teaching of Jesus about this, and we're going to see one of the main areas of conflicts between him and the Jews. Now, if you go to Matthew 15, all right, Matthew chapter 15, and what we're saying, the law showed you that you were sinful, but it could do nothing to change you, all right? But if you were self-righteous, you could adopt the approach of obeying the external commands of the law and therefore concluding, well, I'm righteous because I'm doing what the law says. Now, in Matthew 15, all, all right, uh, let's just read verse 1 to 2. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, that is a tradition of the elders' things, all right. But what we really need to see in verse 10 and hear what Jesus said. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. Now, what goes into your mouth is an external thing. It's external. Jesus said, it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Then the disciples came to him and, and, and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they're blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, lies, slander. These are what make a man unclean. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that if you're under the law and trying to obey the law, you end up with the mentality of, well, I'm doing what the law says externally, therefore I'm right with God, all right? But what Jesus is saying here is that righteousness and sin is not so much to do with what you do or don't you or, or don't do, it's what's inside your heart. I.e., you can refrain 
from a particular act of sin, but in your heart be full of that sin. Um, if you go to chapter 5, still in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, first of all, verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And all the Pharisees say, Amen to that. Yes, that's right. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, now, that is a, a word that is a definite insult, all right, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, will you, uh, who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what he's saying there is that, yeah, the law says it's wrong to murder. So you must not murder. That's the law, external. But what Jesus is saying is that you can be free of committing the act of murder, but in your heart you can be full of murderous thoughts. And because holiness is to do with God, and because God doesn't look on the externals, he looks on our heart, therefore, even though you haven't murdered someone, if you have evil, angry thoughts about somebody, as far as God's concerned, that is murder, because he's reading the heart. Go to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And all the Pharisees saying, well, yes, that's us righteous, because I haven't. Jesus said, but I tell you. Now, can you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, the law says, but I say. In effect, what Jesus is saying, the old covenant might well have said, but I'm telling you that the new covenant says this. And he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, can you see the point? If you didn't commit adultery, the law said you're righteous at that point. But Jesus comes along and says, even if you don't, if your heart has got lust in it, you've committed adultery. You're not righteous at all. And you see, the point is the Pharisees, they maintained that they were righteous because they were in obedience to the Ten Commandments. They were refraining from the forbidden acts. Or like in regards to the Sabbath laws, they were obeying those laws. And the point is, the idea of the law was there to convict them of sin, but what they were doing is that they turned it inside out and said, we're not doing the acts, therefore the law is showing us we're righteous and we're saved. And of course the point is, the Pharisees kept the law outwardly whilst all the time breaking it inwardly. Or think of it like this, they managed to live by the letter of the law, but they were absolutely bereft of the spirit of the law. Can you see the difference? They had the external obedience, but in their hearts they were going against the law at every point. Uh, if you go to Mark, uh, Mark chapter 12, just a quickie here, Mark chapter 12, um, and uh, let's see, where do we... Where do we want? Verse 28. Um, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said, of all the commandments, and now he'd have been talking really about the ten, all right, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus said, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, Jesus there is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what that does is it's, it's summing up the first of the four of the Ten Commandments, which are all to do with loving God, including the Sabbath, because the reason for the Sabbath was a day to, you know, to love God-like. And then Jesus said, the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. And he says, there's no commandment greater than these. Now there, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. And that sums up commandments 5 to 10, 
which are all to do with love your neighbour, all right? So what Jesus is saying is that the law, in its work of kind of representing the righteousness of God, it, it sums up, you know, sort of in that way, love God and those around you, all right? Now, the point is, the Pharisees were obeying the letter of the law externally, but without a shred of love for either God or man. They love themselves. And can you see, externally they obeyed the law, but inwardly they went against it the whole time. And that's the push behind the Sermon on the Mount. And that is why Jesus said that blessed are the pure in heart. Forget about whether you're obeying the Ten Commandments externally. Blessed are the pure in heart. You can abstain from adultery and be full of lust. You can abstain from murder and be full of hate. So Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And then he goes on to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Now what's he saying? The Pharisees obeyed the law externally. But when someone's born again and God changes them on the inside, they've then got the righteousness of God in them. And that is better than someone who merely has the externals, all right? And so the point is that here God is saying a new covenant is about to come, or in fact it was already there. And what he's saying is, all right, that what the law could only represent externally, the holiness of God externally, the new covenant is going to change people on the inside. So rather than it representing the holiness of God externally, it's going to put the holiness and righteousness of God inside you. Can you see the difference? It's not just going to say, here is the right and the good, it's going to grant you the power to be able to actually do it. And that is why the new covenant supersedes the old and the old passes away. Because the old cannot do that job. It can condemn you, it shows you that you're a sinner, it shows you that if you're to be saved it has to be some other way. And the new covenant is that other way and it changes you on the inside. If you go to Hebrews 8, let's actually start seeing this as the New Testament talks about the New Covenant, all right? And in Hebrews, chapter 8, and if you just find verse 6, um, now we saw last time Paul proved the New Covenant by referring it to the law and Moses and the commandments. Now what the writer to the Hebrews does is he takes the same tack as Paul but he argues from the sacrificial system, alright? Now uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, alright? And uh, the writer says, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, i.e. the priests in the Old Testament, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on promises that are better. So what the writer is saying here, the old covenant, what did it promise? It promised you blessing if you were good and cursing if you were bad. The new covenant, what does it promise? It promised you blessing, full stop. Better covenant and a better promise because it doesn't depend on you. And then he says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So he's saying if the old covenant could have done that, the new wouldn't have come. But it couldn't. The old covenant was simply there to bring you to faith, to show you you were sinful, and to show you that salvation had to be through grace. But God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes the Jeremiah prophecy that we've already looked at, and, um, and then in verse 13, 
He says, by calling the covenant new, he has made the first one, Moses, the law, obsolete. And what is obsolete and ageing will soon disappear. So the point is, because the new covenant has come, the old covenant, it vanishes. It's done its job. It's through. We're not under law, under grace, you see. And uh, if you go through the New Testament, let's actually see the old covenant disappearing, how God pushed it out of the church so that Christianity had nothing to do with it. Um, if you go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. The thing that man needs is to be saved from the penalty of sin, and that's through God's grace, but he needs to be saved from the power of sin as well. The new covenant changes people on the inside. The old couldn't do it, and therefore, now that the new has come, the old has passed away. Now, in Acts 10, 3 verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. Now the people who are on their way are Gentiles, and God is sending some Gentiles to Peter to say, come and preach the gospel to us. Now then, Peter was a Jew. Under the law, a Jew couldn't have anything to do with Gentiles, all right? He became hungry, you know, so here's Peter on the roof and he's praying and he gets hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed beasts as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. This is all the stuff that Jews were forbidden to eat. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. The Lord's saying, you're hungry? Eat this. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And God was showing to Peter there, look, the old has gone. You're no longer bound by all that. That was the externals that simply foreshadowed the coming of reality. And he said, Peter, the reality has come now. My laws are written on your heart. Forget about the law of Moses. That was external. My law is written on your heart now. All those things about the unclean stuff, forget it. It doesn't apply. Can you see, God is pushing the old covenant out of Peter, who obviously was a Jew, uh, you know, who all his life had been under the law. Uh, if you go to chapter 15, um, first two verses. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about it. All right? So they're saying, hey, look, you know, I mean, you know, everyone's saying, you've got to be under the law. And Paul's saying, no, we haven't. We've got to get this sorted out, you know, and Jerusalem is the place, okay. So then verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law. All right. Now go to verse 19, because what happens is that the church now get together, all right, and they debate it out. They say, look, we've got to know what the answer to this is. Are we under the law or not? When we see people get saved, have we got to circumcise them and put them, you know, in the law or not? Okay. Now, look at verse 19. And this is James speaking. He says, It is my judgment that we should not make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols. Well, that seems fairly you know, sort of clear, because that's occult. But listen to this. Uh, oh, from being immoral, that's fairly clear, but from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. So, you know, sort of James says, now what exactly are the Gentiles under? What have we got here? The covenant with Noah. You see, they say, hey, yeah, of course, look, you know, the law is gone. That covenant is dead. We're not under that. 
the knower one we are. So therefore, don't eat meat unless it's been bled. And uh, so what they do is they send a letter out to all the churches, and then in verse 28 and 29, we just see um, the end of the letter. And, uh, and the apostles write, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following. Now, because there were Christians trying to burden them with the law. That, that was all gone. He says, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, occultism, from blood, from the meat of beasts that are strangled. There you've got the Noah thing, and from being immoral. You will do well to avoid all those things. So the point is, we're still under the Noah thing, you know, capital punishment ought still to be the way. We saw that. But the point is here, in the church, here, we're seeing that God, he says, look, the law is gone, and he pushes it out of the church, so that the church understands that they're not under it anymore. The old has gone. For you, as Christians, the Bible says it's the new covenant solely. Now then, in regards to that, we're going to ask, what is the basis then of the new covenant? Uh, if you go back to, is he, um, back to Exodus 24, um, we saw the, the basis of the old covenant. And we've just got to remind ourselves of this. Uh, Exodus 24, Exodus 24 and verse 1. And this is when the Old Covenant was being given, all right? Um, we'll start, start reading uh, from, from verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said, so there the book of the law is being written. He got up early the next morning and built an altar, all right? And then in verse 5, then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt sacrifices of bulls as offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the law and read it to the people. They responded saying, we will do everything the Lord has said. And then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And what happens here, bulls are cut in half and their blood, you know, is sort of thrown everywhere, all right? Because by blood, a covenant was sealed. So there's the blood of the old. But we're interested, what is the basis of the new covenant? And if you go to Luke, Luke chapter 22, we've seen that the old one was, you know, brought into being through the shedding of blood bulls and goats. Because remember, everything in the old was simply there to foreshadow what was eventually going to come in the new, the reality of Jesus. And in Luke 22, verse 20, and this is at the Last Supper, Luke 22 and verse 20, just look what Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, what is the basis of the new covenant? It was the blood of Jesus. And the blood of the old was simply symbolic of eventually the blood of Jesus that was going to be shed to bring in the new. Uh, go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And the writer is taking various aspects of the old covenant and saying it's all gone now because it was merely picture language of what Jesus was eventually going to do. So now that Jesus has come, all that has passed away. Um, so Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we'll start reading from verse 3. And he says, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the sacrificial system. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is a quote um, from, from uh, Psalm 40, again in the 
Old Testament. Listen to this. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire. Now, that's the law. But a body you prepared for me. This is Jesus speaking, you know, before he became a man. And there you've got grace. With burnt offerings and for sin, you were not pleased. That was the law. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And there's Jesus. And the writer goes on to say, he says, sacrifices, etc., you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. But they were no good. They were only a picture of Jesus. They couldn't save you, all right? Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. So we've got the law, and then we've got Messiah coming to do God's will. And then it says, he sets aside the first to establish the second. The old covenant passes away once the new has come. Um, and, uh, whoops, I've gone and got myself lost now. Um, right, uh, uh, um, yeah, that's right. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Then, uh, in chapter 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because once he died, that was it. The sacrifice was made. No more, you know, sort of sacrificial system. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. That was verse, um, verse 12. Hebrews Sorry, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, yeah, and verse 12. And then, in verse 15, he quotes the Jeremiah passage. So he's saying, the new has come with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, a new thing has happened, the old has passed away. So, the point is, Jesus died on the cross, the problem of sin was dealt with. The law could only condemn you for sin. The law, in effect, could only say, you're going to be judged for sin. But Jesus died on the cross, and then the old passed away, because it couldn't help, because the new came, and the new says, you're sinners, but you can be forgiven, and you can be blessed. 